Hi, and welcome to the Dewing Grain podcast. Dewing Grain are independent and local grade traders. From seed supply to harvest movement and storage contracts, they can offer you the best strategies to achieve the highest prices for your harvest. Each week on our podcast, we begin with the Dewing Grain Market Report, giving you up-to-date information and analysis, followed by Farm Chat, where we catch up on agricultural issues with a guest or two while sampling a beer. Andrew's favourite bit. So let's start with Andrew Dewing and this week's Market Report. Welcome to the Market Report. What follows are my thoughts or gut instincts on what the market is going to do. It is not an instruction to trade. Any decision to trade is yours. Market report for week commencing 14th of November 2022. Now, funnily enough, I'm in one of those sorts of moods this morning. So I'm going to start with a, does everyone know the story about the emperor's new clothes or the king's new clothes? Because we've got a topic at the moment that is incredibly contentious. And there is a number of very large multinational companies who basically control AIC because they pay the most money into it, which is fair enough, I guess. But there's a whole lot of people trying to push through the famous electronic passport. And in my opinion, it's kind of building a fence across a right of way in order to put a gate in place so you can charge people money for going through it. And then under the guise of anyone who doesn't believe in it is a Luddite or a moron. And I was famously called a Luddite by Keith Davis at one of the European bosses on this subject about, I don't know how many years ago that was, but it was 12, 13, 14 years ago. He predicted that passports would be in place within a couple of years, which obviously hasn't worked. But here we are revisiting it. AHDB have got their teeth into it as well. And they're kind of looking for a reason to be at the moment, which, you know, maybe this is something that would justify their existence. They're worried about people voting them out of existence, which is fair enough. I personally think this is the wrong line. They need to focus a little bit more on maybe getting farmers to realise just how monopolised our industry is going to become if they don't watch out. That's where their energies need to go. But back to the old naked emperor walking down the street. Look at the king. Look at the king. Look at the king. The king. The king. He's naked. If you look at events like Storm Arwen last November, basically caused, you know, a network cascading failure. Lots of things went down and started failing. Consequently, you get a breakdown in IT, the entire intake system breaks. You know, it doesn't work. You can't tip any load anywhere because it doesn't actually go. The computer gives you a kicking. You don't have a storm doing the damage. Oh, that that, that barely happens. That's rubbish. (laughs) Okay, let's look at the NHS IT system. Originally valued at 12.7 billion, set up in 2002. By the time it was scrapped in 2011, this was the, we'll get rid of paper and any any patient can walk into any hospital and all the details will be there. And bearing in mind that hospitals and GP surgeries still don't actually connect with each other. So you go to a hospital, you have to explain who you are and what you are, and they haven't got access to the GP note which is really scary anyway the final scrapping price 29.2 billion billion uh it's not a politician that's not talking billions the fire brigade project to localize or become more efficient in reporting fires closing 46 control rooms opening nine pan local uh, offices 494 million spent on something that effectively was at times almost catastrophic all of the Army, Navy and Air Force, I can't remember the name of that project, but $7.1 billion spent on something which created a greater risk of us being hacked and our army being compromised on the basis of it all being in one unit which they couldn't control.
well. 7.1 billion, that was 180 million over budget. But my favourite, I think the one that really resonates when farmers go, oh yeah, it doesn't bother me if we have a new passport. Let's do some thinking as opposed to some numbing out, all right? This isn't a classroom moment. This is a moment where something is affecting you. People are after data. And your data is really valuable. If you let that data slip slide off into the distance, the people who can afford to buy the data are very wealthy companies. With that data, they know everything about you in terms of your grain trading, not in terms of your porn watching on the internet. They know everything about you and they can target you and become even more efficient within it. But... It's something that disadvantages you. It creates less competition in your industry and you end up with less of a price if you allow someone to monopolise. And as we've touched on before, if you allow multinational companies to control the UK grain trade, lots and lots and lots of the tax that should go to the UK government goes to America or goes to other countries. That is not a good thing. We are stupid if we allow that to happen. So I'm beginning to get on the edge of ranting now, you know. All I would say is there are several small merchants, which if you put them all together, adds up to quite a few tonnes. And there's a little slice of me that gets a little bit militant about something like this. And I think if you could actually pull them together and and give an example to farmers of what they could do if they actually worked together, and said, no, we're not going to adopt the system, it would confront the consumers with an issue where they would go, hang on a minute, I'm either just going to have to deal with big American firms or I'm going to have to cut my choice out in effect. What what am I doing here? These guys are saying they don't want to do it. We've got a system that works efficiently, cheaply, can't be hacked. IT systems get hacked, everybody. Can't break down. Oh, no, 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 nowadays it's just being a a Luddite. (laughs) Come on, break the machines. No, let's take a little look at the traffic system. The smart motorway system in the last four days has broken down three times, one for a nine-hour stretch on the M25. Now, that's a 70-mile-an-hour lane you've just broken down in. You've got someone about to hit you up the backside because you've broken down and nobody knows, all right? That's happened. It broke down. It's So if you had a breakdown in the IT system wherever this is being managed, right, you would not be able to tip a single load anywhere in the UK, the whole system would break. Whatever possesses anybody to want to create that risk, I, I just don't get it. And nobody can say that doesn't happen because everybody's computer has frozen. Everybody's computer has broken down. Everybody who's listening to this has phoned up a call centre to try and make their bank card work or they went into Sainsbury's with the centralised system, the contactless, that broke the other day. So people were in any Sainsbury's anywhere in the country and they filled their bags up with the stuff, went boop, boop, to the system, came to the contact payment system and it broke, didn't work across the whole country. So people just walked away leaving their bags on the till going, oh, sod that. That's the reality of being called a Luddite. That's the the reality of a system that works for non-IT literate people, farmers generally. Not everybody, don't get offended all the time, boys. Lorry drivers, historically the worst people at IT, I suggest. Weybridge operators, again, Generally speaking, wage operators, lorry drivers were probably the least IT literate and probably they're over the age of 50 anyway, which puts them up with a limited skill at IT. These are the people who are delivering the grain and they're the ones who's just dropped their mobile phone down the toilet. So they go to go boop and it doesn't work because their phone's fused. And what do you do then? Oh, uh, uh, goodbye. You can't tip. This is nuts. Anyway. 
I suspect there'll be a reaction to this conversation, not conversation, monologue. I also think that Doing Grain, because of the, the volume of conversations we've had with other merchants about it and people who are aware, I think we will have a whole podcast on this next week when we do the chat, subject to, you know, not being banned from several sites and whatever else. Whoever else I've offended by calling them Americans, stormtroopers. Right, let's get to the market. That's what I'm supposed to be doing. So the rant and you're driving on a Monday morning grain trade is, uh, you know, back to being calm again. Hopefully you're not on a motorway with a broken down system. Anyway, so feed barley, let's start with that. Feed barley for November, 240x farm. Probably the same price for December. That's if someone has got tonnage they need to buy. If they were looking to trade it, the price you could make delivered is probably 248, 249-ish, somewhere around there in East Anglia. And there ain't a lot of margin of you buying it at 240. So it is one of those markets that has come down and doesn't look particularly healthy at this point. The whole market has been governed by a fall in futures prices across the whole of the world. It has been predicted on our podcast. I will milk that one. The market's dropped 10 quid in the last two or three days over here, and the prices that are being quoted don't sound as attractive by any stretch. It doesn't mean to say they're bad prices still, and we've got people who seem keen on getting stuff out of the way before Christmas. So I would value X Farm feed wheat for December about 258, something like that, at time of recording, and the futures are currently trading at 273. If you look at January, we would probably pay 262 for Jan. If you're selling it for May, we pay 268. That's approximately where we're at at the moment. Milling wheat premiums are really, really good. And the big news on milling wheat is, and I'm sorry about this, Millers, but the cost of nitrogen, the cost of growing milling wheat has become a very obvious expensive operation. And we are hearing of contracts on new crop with a minimum premiums being quoted of up to £40 a tonne. Now, whether that's true or not, I don't know, but you can't lose at £40 a tonne if someone's writing a minimum on it. We're not doing that. We're not big on milling wheat, but we really haven't got very many milling wheat growers for the coming season. People are just kicking that into touch because of the cost of the nitrogen to get the protein up there. So I think any milling wheat grower has got themselves into a strong position if they are going to go through that process. So there's one for watching. And malting barley, yeah, that, with everything else, is in the doldrums a little bit. There seems to be a lack of real urgency in the trade. The market is slipping sort of slightly. Spot values up to Christmas, depending on grade, uh, you know, someone needs, invariably someone wants something obscure that no one's got. So, you know, a high nitrogen craft or something like that might be worth more money than a low nitrogen craft, as an example. But in round figures, sort of 280x, 275x maybe, that one's under a bit of pressure at the moment. There is trade to be done. It's mainly with the shorts that have got to supply good price contracts, but it isn't a particularly healthy market. There is export going on in the background, but again, that one is also slip sliding away. That's been helped with recent sort of volatility in the currency market. Pound had a couple of moments where it dropped quite markedly. And if people seize those moments, fix their currency, you end up in a place where you fixed a really good price for a cargo in sterling. But that's because of currency fluctuation. And looking at new crop, it's very clear the spring value acreage will be lower. I know people are saying, oh, no, I disagree. You're just being parochial in North Norfolk. I think the fact that the autumn was kind, the price of feed wheat is showing a very healthy margin. Feed wheat is the obvious choice to grow. People are saying, oh, no, I'm going to grow more spring value because it saves me inputs. 
that's just stupid. It's, you know, it, look at the maths of what makes you the most money. Don't look at, it cost me too much to buy fertiliser. It just you know, it shows a lack of attention in the maths lesson, blunting. You don't want to let people know you didn't really try. You've got to say, what does wheat make me guaranteed without the heartache of rejection? What does malting barley make me if I get the right weather in the spring and the nitrogen's right and the screenings are right and the germination's right? And, you know, et cetera, et cetera. The, the risk reward is, the risk is greater with malting barley than it is with wheat. It's more of a home bet with wheat. So, yeah, I think there will be a much bigger wheat crop and the spring barley acreage is therefore reduced. And therefore, you know, premiums for next year, I think, will continue to be healthy because stocks haven't recovered that much. So it's just that the whole market at the moment is coming down. And so as new crop feed wheat prices, the futures have come down to 255, which makes it kind of 240 that's a tough one to value. Say November 243, 244x, something like that. It's, it's not quite 15 under, but yeah, that's the value. You're looking at 235 delivered to a store for immediate harvest movement if you've got to cut it that day. Those are prices that are lower than we've seen. Slightly less attractive, but still an incredible profit. So, you know, we are seeing with the crop looking really well and various world developments, the market being prepared to have a few sellers come into it. I think in the short term, that's the likely trend. So I think it will slip back some more. Take a longer term view. We just need Vlad to do something with one of his bombs or we need the weather in the spring to do something dastardly. And let's be really blunt with COP27 going on. That is a very high probability so i think if you don't sell it i think the weather will come and give you a bit of a pat on the back later anyway it's just in between now and january will it go up Mm, not unless vlad does something dumb no i don't think it will take a breath yeah that's kind of where we're at really i've probably forgotten some oh yeah we'll see right but i knew i had 535 for december movement x harvest new crop 528 yeah that's kind of where it is valued at this precise second that one's up and down that horse draws as well and let's not forget the bird flu we mentioned previously that's coming home to roost that's a lot of the reason why the market's dropping and as i say i do see in the short term the whole market coming under a prolonged piece of kind of selling pressure from farm as everyone thinks well maybe it wasn't such a bad price i better put some away so that's kind of where we're at if you judge your life by price movement you're going to have a glum couple of weeks i did have a farmer this morning say very very unconsciously to me yeah we're just shutting down for the season now i thought i might just sell a bit of wheat and i just want to say on behalf of the rest of mankind that is a classic by shutting down for the season that means i've got nothing to do till february I just think that's funny. If anyone doesn't, then I'm sorry. But just for the rest of us on the planet, we're going to work every day in between now and uh, the end of Feb. You know, let's rejoice at how hard those farmers work. Anyway, that's uh, lost my customer base. It's lost my um, the people who want to buy from me. And long live the podcast. That's what I say. Have a great week. Thank you for listening. Please remember that any decision to trade on this opinion is yours. thought about spring nitrogen? TMAC Agro UK have been producing fertiliser for the world's farmers for 60 years and have been supplying the UK grassland sector for 40. Recently, TMAC have brought their proven, industry-leading technology to the UK arable market. Their end process technology operates 25% more efficiently than conventional fertilisers. This allows the opportunity for reduced application rates and increased yields year on year. 
Their trained nutrient advisors are operating in your area now. To learn more about TMAC or speak to one of our advisors, please call 07939 026550 or email info at uk.tmacagro.com. Thank you for your time and enjoy the rest of the podcast. Today I've got with me Alan Rydelge, who was previously the Chief Executive of Munson's and now is making beer. So Alan, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Andrew. Now, I think I'd like to start, because you've been in the industry since leaving college, university? Uh, not Yes, I suppose so. Uh, I, I did start with the Ministry of Agriculture initially. That was my first job as an entomologist mm-hmm. uh, back in the late 70s. Did you love it? Yeah, so, I thought it was brilliant and I would have loved to have continued with it. But along came a certain Mrs Thatcher who then started to cut back uh, on the civil service and my job looked like it would disappear. So I applied for a job with Muntons at Bridlington in East Yorkshire. Mm-hmm. Which was? Trainee Grand Buyer. Okay. And I was told by the... Because I used to work quite closely with the merchants on export cargoes of barley to Russia. Mm-hmm. that went out of the Trent ports when I was with the Ministry of Agriculture, certifying that they were free from insect pests. And I, when I said, oh, I'm going to apply for this job at Muntons, and I'd not heard of Muntons, and I'd not really knew much about malt or barley either, really. Well, a bit about the pests of barley and malt. And somebody said to me, uh, oh, it's a great job. He said, you, can, uh, you work hard for six months, and you've got six months, you can just go and play golf. And I thought to myself... That sounds perfect. Six <laughs> months of working and then six months of being able to go fishing. I don't play golf, but go fishing. Yeah. I thought, ideal. So I applied for it and I think there was something like 120 applicants for that particular job. Anyway, I got the job, but I never found that six months off. That no, never no. ever happened. No, well, everyone thinks that people in the grain trade work hard at harvest time and then basically the rest of the year is for free, isn't it? Yeah. And I've never found that. You know, lots of years you never use your holiday. There's always... Absolutely. Yeah, storing grain is enough of a burden and then delivering the stuff, the logistics, etc., etc. Yeah. Funny enough, harvest is the easiast part because mm. you're completely submerged in it yeah and it, and it just becomes your life all of that time but outside of harvest you've got to start doing things differently you've got to look at ways of driving that part of the business or eventually yeah. the whole business on yeah absolutely well this is this this comes more into as you developed your career at Munton's I mean so it was from being trainee grain buyer you know obviously things went fairly well didn't they yeah I mean I just had a great tutors Ken Osman and Guy Simpson mm-hmm. who, were, who were the grain manager at Bridlington and the grain director at Muntons were just fantastic and, and so the training I got and the background I got and the opportunity to get involved in everything and over the years I had a couple of years at Bridlington and then I moved to Star Market had I think it was five years at Star Market then went back to Bridlington so and, and your roles at that time were what grain orientated but they were getting wider so I, I certainly worked in every single department and across the whole company at the mm. time including being on short shift on malt production malt extract See, this is all vital stuff isn't it all stuff like that which <coughs> meant you got to know people and mm. process really mm. really well and then I was getting a bit bored towards the end of my second spell at Bridlington and all of a sudden everything began to change and my boredom I suppose sparked off some thinking what can we do different whatever and at the same time we were doing a little bit of that down at Stone Market so we started as Munton started acquiring grain merchants 
companies. Mm-hmm. So we bought one in Yorkshire. We, bought, we had a road haulage company in Yorkshire. We had a grain merchant in East Anglia. We had and a seed squir- company, CK Squirrel. Yeah. Uh, we had Simpson. We bought Simpson Seeds. Mm-hmm. By that time, I had moved back to back to Stone. What was your Market. role then? What was your grain director? Okay. And I was responsible for all of the merchanting operations. We were also running. Robert Kilgour in Scotland. So I was spending a lot of time, obviously, on the road as well, mm-hmm. particularly during the, the early post-harvest period. Mm. But that was just immersing in that, and that was great because mm. we were growing, we were expanding, we were bringing people into the group, and we were beginning to be the largest part of Muntons, actually, in terms of turnover. Mm. So what sort, of, what sort of age were you then? What sort of, we're, we're talking um, 2000 and... Yes, so we're talking somewhere between 90, not my age... Between 1990 and 2000, yeah. so I'd be... I can't do the sums now. I don't think I want to do the sums now. <clears throat> 40s. Yeah. 30s, 40s. Yeah. And it's also running the farm, because we had a farm at Bridlington, which right. originally was, was intensive beef, but we did get out of beef. Mm-hmm. But we kept the arable land, so I was running the arable land as well. That was easy then. That was great fun. I said that purely for the farmer listeners to get enraged. So well, hope we that. were right on Flamborough Head, so okay. we had the sea on three sides. Mm-hmm. 300-foot cliffs or whatever they were mm. and the wind used to lift spring seedlings out of the ground okay. and deposit them about 50 meters back on on the field we didn't employ any but i was the only person involved with the farm so mm. i used a farm contractor who was a neighboring farmer and we worked pretty well together and i did say that i wanted us to be predominantly malting barley oh you can't grow malting barley on this land well <laughs> in the year that we got out of it we won the national malting barley competition and skag george thompson he was growing 100 percent malting barley as well so you can grow malting barley with care on any sort of land and we'd put tons of manure from the farm onto that land as well and there's me thinking you can tell a yorkshireman anything (laughs) (laughs) and in fact it reminds you it takes a yorkshireman to tell a yorkshireman well it was well i didn't ever tell him I know, no. What, how do you, how we do, you were... do it? Just in case I ever go to Yorkshire and don't want to be mugged. Believe it or not, we grew some spring barley one year, a variety called Nomad. Mm-hmm. It did over four tonnes to the acre. Wow. Okay. It was absolutely fantastic. Ah, that was a fluke, lad. That, it probably was. Aye, lucky. It was one of the few dry Best... harvests in Yorkshire. <laughs> So from there, you came back down to Stowmarket, and who was in charge in those days? Well, when, when I came down, Andrew Shelley was the was the managing director. Mm-hmm. Um, I came down as grain director, so I joined the, the main board in 1994, I think mm-hmm. it was. And I was the grain director, and then afterwards became the director responsible for malt and grain, mm-hmm. so all malt production and grain. And after a period as deputy M- group MD, I was appointed full MD in 2007. Okay. Of the whole group, by which time we had reduced our involvement in grain merchanting mm-hmm. and seed, and we had some challenges. It's, it's fair to say. Look, in that period, there were, I mean, challenges in merchanting. Merchants have disappeared mm-hmm. over the entire time from when you started in the late seventies through to now. And the normal run of things is that they they just gradually disappear, and we end up with about three people to trade with. We're trying to reverse that, as you know, as doing grain. But there's more than that. There's the haulage thing, because sometimes since 2007 to now, you, your haulage fleet went as well, didn't you? you outsourced yes, that. we outsourced all the haulage. I mean, and those are you don't. I mean, those are things you don't regret either, because it's a specialist thing that you just have to be a hundred percent in, don't yeah, you? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that was. Certainly on haulage, that was a reason for doing that. Was was you, People could do it much better than we could do it. Mm. Total focus, I agree. I've, as I've always said, if you see a, a lorry with my name on the side of it, it's time to shoot me because mm. I really have lost the plot. <laughs> because I couldn't do it as well as a man who understands 
logistics and lorries. I just, it's not Absolutely, and I think we found the same with seed production as well. Mm. I think merchanting perhaps was just beginning to, uh, was a bit a step too soon for us because other molsters subsequently. The strongest thing in the end is the grower. They are the stem. If they didn't grow it, if it wasn't there, there wouldn't be the industry. And there's obviously what would you do with the land, but you know, everyone can have caravans on it. You know, there's a very strong position in this day and age for farmers. There's less and less arable land every single year. And, you know, at the moment, prices are good and people are encouraged to continue doing it. If you see much of a drop-off on that or the cost going up too much, or you see a generation that don't really want to do that thing, a lot of people are like, I'm a farmer and that's what I'm going to do. That inclination isn't so solid as it was. There's still plenty of them around who want to do it. They don't only land. There's plenty who do or who are in that position. They've gone off to be accountants or bankers or something else instead. And it isn't so clear-cut. It's not so certain they're going to keep growing or doing that thing so i see them as you know for a company who consumes i do see a benefit in owning a business or having an involvement in a business and you're right there's other other firms have made that step in recent times haven't they so i mean it's it's an ever evolving no absolutely and and again you you know you can only put your energies in certain directions as well and and one of the things that we were doing from 2007 at muntins was expanding in the world markets Mm. We increased our presence across Asia and, uh, and North America, for example, which led to a joint venture with a manufacturing operation in Thailand, which eventually, post me, was acquired by 100% by, by the company. So you sales department, you hadn't been on malt sales in your going through the system. Yeah, yeah, I was running all of everything. I was doing everything to do with malt. We had a sales director and salesman, mm. but um, I would I would be involved with them on the, some of the big customers. Although for a period, when we first started doing malt, I actually had my own customers as well, but that quickly changed. Yeah, well, I mean, uh, so, I mean, and so North America, you know, the, the sort of Marisota story, was it based on that or was it your own, your own product saying the, no? The expansion into North America came on the back of our homebrew to be perfectly oh, okay. honest and the strength we had in in homebrew into the US which is the biggest market for homebrew mm. and we piggybacked onto that malt sales to the beginning of the growth of the craft brewery scene in the US and really the change came where we felt we had to have a physical presence rather than through agents was when our agent that we'd been using decided to retire mm-hmm. and that was the point we said well we, we've got to be in the US I still think if you're in the selling into the US with for brewing ingredients for example you really need to be there. It was Seattle you set up, wasn't it? Initially in Seattle, and that moved to Chicago, yeah, uh, where it currently is. And we had distribution in Denver, San Francisco, Boston, in order to reach those the hubs of where the microbrewers, the craft brewers. I, I, rem- I remember going to the states, thinking uh, they have a bunch of clueless lager drinking morons <laughs> who, you know, and this would be mid nineties. And in shopping malls or in individual marketplaces, there were lots of small independent breweries making real ale. And I remember thinking, this is this is what should be happening. I mean, we, we, the real ale was well on the way to being, uh, you know, popular. Again, in the UK by then, but, it, but there still wasn't microbreweries the same. They really were ahead of us on that. Wasn't Absolutely, they? yeah. And and that worked because you had some really good local ales. Yeah, craft beer really than than real ale mm. probably is, is is a better way to describe yeah. it. Looking back on it at the time, I'm sure that was was the phrase that we used. Mm. The way the breweries were set up, the the microbreweries were set up, and crucially, the beers that they were producing really set the trend, which we're still in now in terms of uh, things like IPA, hoppy beers. And why UK product? Why not American? You know, Americans best. We we grow it better than you do, honey. You know, is it the oldie English recipe sort of 
sales or what was it? I think the big benefit for the UK was the fact that we had good malting barley and a good reputation for growing malting barley. And a lot of the early brewers in the States used UK malting barley and malt in their production. And it just simply performed better than anything else. US did not produce very much malt of that standard. Majority of it was made for the bulk lager production Mm -hmm. for Anheuser-Busch at the time, Mm -hmm. for Budweiser, which was six-row barley, quite high in nitrogen, high Mm -hmm. in enzymes, which is almost the opposite that you need for Mm -hmm. craft beer. So it was a good timing from the UK malt industry's point Mm -hmm. of view. It's been a big and successful market. Yeah, still going strong, isn't it? Yeah, but the knock-on back into the UK was the, the growth that came in the craft brewers over mm. here having experienced what happened in the US. Mm. And so Asia, what happened over there then? Because we, we, you know, we were very aware of some of our barleys through Muntons going across to Suntory and others. I think there are two stories there really. One is the traditional malt for brewing element of it mm. and that grew really, we were always quite strong in Thailand, in Japan and in Vietnam and, and in fact all around the world. Peak we were some thing like 95 countries we were supplying in one year something like 150 countries altogether we had supplied that was competing against the other monsters in the world quality reputation was very good but nevertheless you were always competing with australian monsters with canadian monsters with french monsters but our point of difference really was on malted ingredients which mm. was malt extract and mm-hmm. dried malt extracts into the food industry mm-hmm. and their malt is a very very popular ingredient in asia particularly into the malt milk drinks, Horlicks, Ovaltine for example, which were massive in Singapore, in Thailand in Malaysia a huge demand and all of that had to be imported because they don't have their own they don't grow barley and therefore they don't make malt and we grew and developed on that base and the building of the factory in in Asia, in Thailand in the Bangkok region was to to meet that marketplace Yeah so there you know so let's kind of recap, there you are you know, you joined Muntons, you've applied to be a trainee, you think you're getting six months off fishing, and you're sitting in a, you know, on a flight to uh, Thailand mm. as MD, chief executive, you know, at which, which point you, is that the same thing? Or yeah, you, it's the same thing, essentially. Right, so there you go, top banana. At the business, you started at a nice low step. You've worked in every department. You know, at what point do you kind of sit at there at the top and think, crikes, how did I do that? Or did you just think it was always going to happen? <laughs> no, certainly didn't. I, I had no intention <laughs> whatsoever of going for the MD role if ever it came up I was extremely happy being responsible for grain Mm. that was very much in my comfort zone it just was circumstances my previous MD left and the board decided to advertise the role outside and initially I think I was quite cross at that Mm -hmm. I wasn't necessarily thinking of myself but we had some other quite talented people on the board who might have been wanted to do anyway I decided to apply for it and I got it but it was never a role I had any aspiration I would have looked at your CV and seen every department worked in and I'd have gone those are all massive pluses to me because I you know it's like we've got two young lads at the moment working outside at Ailsham here 22 years old now and they are they've done the hard yards on drying malting barley on maintaining the quality of this all the things you have to do with storage all yeah. that mucky stuff all that dusted covered done misery that as well. <laughs> yeah exactly and somewhere down the line they've both got 
you know, personalities in there, they're good lads. I can see them coming onto our side of the industry. And the benefit they will have over usual university graduate type, I'm well known for being a little anti chip on shoulder stuff, but these two lads will have the ability to turn around to any farmer and say, Well, I've done that. I know I know what I'm talking about. I've got knowledge about that base product. So your experience in every single department to me is enormous. It's just, you know, it's obvious to me. It made my life a lot easier when I became MD. Because hmm. um, no one can say you don't understand correct and, but also because I knew people yeah. so I was able to influence people easier yeah yeah at that time it was useful to have a more personal relationship with people as well because yeah, we were beginning to drive changes we had to change mm. and we had to drive those changes through yeah personal relationships I think still need to exist I think that's where some people go fall short on it I know businesses get really big but if you possibly can it's like have some form of absolutely Andrew yeah. you want to forge a team that works well together yeah and doesn't particularly need anybody leading it no because it's already decided the direction it's yeah. going to go in I, I, I and you just get on with it then and you just keep you know monitor it but you get on with it yeah via a conversation not an instruction yeah and it's much more fun yeah yeah and funds i always believe fun was really important that, as well totally a motivated team comes from not making a speech it comes from everyone having some form of ribbing or yeah. whatever they do with each other within the multi-ingredients thing all of this this sales development i remember when you know in in our early years when i was here as ailsham grain marketing before doing grain existed i can remember your center of excellence i remember thinking that was a really good idea well that was something we built i think it was 2008 <clears throat> so it was the year not long after i became md because it was clear if we were going to influence our customers, we needed to show them what our products could do. Mm. And so we built the Centre for Excellence, which had bakery, kitchen, brewery in it. So it covered a whole range of different industries that would take our ingredients. And initially, it was really built for our Asian customers mm. and, and showing them what they could do. Just innovation, wasn't it? It was innovation. Let's try to shove some malt into yeah. that and see what happens. Uh, innovation and, and illustration. Mm. Um, but very quickly, it became dominated by the UK and Europe mm. demand. And in fact, we went on to open another smaller version of our Centre for Excellence in Bangkok, aimed at the Asian market. So there, And that's still running, I gather, I think, today as well. So you've kind of, what I'm trying to get to, I think, is you rise all the way through the business. You become the main man. At some point, you know, you go, right, my job is done here. There was a point where you must have gone, because you, you're now retired from Muntins. And we're going to come yeah. on to what happens next. Yeah. So once you get to that pinnacle, that top moment, what? how do you deal with that? Now, that's, that's a question I kind of... Well, I think it's a very good question. And it's not a comf- always a comfortable phase to go through. At one stage, you used to have to retire at 60. Well, I, that had gone then because legally you didn't have to go at mm. 60. And I had no intention of retiring at 60. Anyway. No, I am 60. I ain't going nowhere. No, because 60 is, you know, it's the new 40, isn't it? 32, um, yeah. <laughs> and I wanted, definitely wanted to keep going. But quite rightly, the board said, we need to have a successor appointed to come in. And we went out and got a successor. Not an easy process to do, not an easy job to follow, to fit into with a company like Muntins. But it got to a stage where I thought, well, we've appointed the successor, slightly ties my hands now on what I want to do. Mm. And really, it's not fair on my successor if I'm still around. I was on a flight back from Asia and I thought to myself, no, I think I've had enough now of doing this. And I think that was in the end of October 2017. I told everybody early December that I was going to stand down. And then I went into a role as, I think it was called Vice President External Affairs, which essentially was liaising and networking with groups outside of the main business. 
business, which was mm-hmm. great fun, and I loved that. That was a lovely role to have up until COVID, mm-hmm. and then of course networking became almost impossible, mm-hmm. um, and uh, I did leave that a little bit early. During that period, because I was part time, it gave me the chance to start the brewery up. Tell us about the brewery. Well, the brewery is a business that I set up with my son John, and we talked about it since he was about two years old, to be honest. <laughs> And during the period leading up to starting the brewery, I was very, very busy. We still used to talk about it. He had started a homebrew shop. He was always very, very keen on beer. He had worked for another small brewery before. Mm-hmm. This shop was in Ipswich. It started to doing some, some beers as well to sell from other brewers. And we had, as I say, talked about this a lot over the years. And I had a group of, I still have a group of friends, which are called Alan's Old Gits and Drinking Group. And we used to do brewery visits, go there on an evening, have a few beers. And um, been getting on an elderly, we generally met at six o'clock so we could be home by nine yeah. um, hopefully arrange some uh, some driving as well and we'd go around to different breweries uh, around East Anglia and uh, and spend some time there and have a few drinks and a pretty good time really and we were at a brewery called Burnt Mill which funny enough is just across the road from Muntins at Star Market mm-hmm. uh, in, in Badley and a lovely beer, lovely brewery and it was in an old grain shed in fact, even on the, on the roof of the shed was an old conveyor that had come from Muntins when we demolished some of the, the storage. And so there was a connection there. But one of the group of friends said, wow, I didn't know you could have a brewery in a shed. I mean, this was a big shed, admittedly. And then he said, I've got a shed. So John was actually with me with that, uh, uh, that particular one. And we looked at each other and went, wow maybe we've found something here and of course we now had a location to do it mm-hmm. so we looked at the shed and it was grotty as anything but we said yeah let's give it a go so that was in september i think 18 it took us a year to convert it into a brewery and we did our first brew in may for the suffolk show 2019 sorry and then we got going really from the july 2019 i can explain the concept behind the brewery in, in a minute or two and we just got going we pretty much agreed our business plan on what we're trying to do we got got funding we did our own little crowdfunding which tended to be from almost entirely from people we already knew and that was very successful we had to pull it at a certain point because we wanted our shareholders to be beer ambassadors and to do that we didn't want to have too many we wanted to be able to manage them that was not quite as easy as it seems so we got going we were producing bottle beer we're producing this was all craft beer as well all going into cask or bottle and being a new brewery, we got a lot of positives and a lot of people took our beers. And then, of course, six months after we'd really got started, along came COVID. Mm. And then at that point, sales to pubs completely disappeared. We mm. lost 90% of our volume overnight. Mm. And then for the next two years, it was really quite a struggle. We, the momentum had gone. It was just a question of making sure we essentially controlled what little cash we had. The one thing I'm very conscious of, we haven't mentioned the name of it, and that's not very good, not very good marketing, is right. it? So a little interjection here okay. of the name of the brewery is Humber Ducey. Humber Ducey Brewing Company, and the name comes from Humber Ducey Lane in Ipswich. And Humber Ducey Lane is named by? Well, Humber Ducey Lane happened to be very close to where my son went to school, and he really liked the name. Mm-hmm. And so he decided on the <coughs> name, really. And then we thought we'd look into what, the roots of Humberdoucy and what it meant. Well, Humberdoucy Lane separates Ipswich from the country, really. And that was also the case in the Napoleonic Wars when French 
prisoners of war were imprisoned at the top end of what became Humberdusi Lane. And then they would be marched down to the fields a little bit further south, for example, at harvest time to bring in the harvest. And it must have been a very warm harvest this particular, well, warm summer this particular year. And they were very appreciative of a row of trees along there, which gave them some shade. And they referred to it as Ambradus, sweet shade. Okay. And Ambradus got became anglicised to Humberdoucey. Or suffragised. Yeah, absolutely. So that's the official definition behind it, although I would suspect there might be some other reasons, but that's... that's yeah, that no, that sounds, that sounds a and good one. Of course, one. we set up in Bacton, which is just north of Stonemarket, because that's where this shed was that we found. And quite a lot of people have asked, why Humberdoucey? Where did the background come from? And pleased to say that because we sponsor Ipswich Ladies Rugby Team, the Scorpions... They're based on Humberdoucey Lane. Same as the so Rugby Club, yeah, I've played absolutely. there many times. So we've returned, if you like, to <coughs> the ancestral home, which is good. But the brewery is in Bacton. We have a shop in Bacton as well, which is located in a Subaru dealership, yep. Jeffrey's of Bacton. Right. So if you go in for a few beers, you might end up buying a Subaru. And there's also a collectible bears shop in there as well, and that's open on a Friday afternoon and a Saturday morning. And very much, of course, we have an online presence as well. Yeah, absolutely vital, which is www.humberdoucybrew.co H is H-U-M-B-E-R-D-O-U-C-Y Y Yeah, yeah. If you put Humberdoucy in, into your um, <coughs> Humberdoucy Brewing into your search engine it will come up with it usually towards the top yeah, I mean, a number of people in the trade will remember it from the, the Norfolk dinner where we moved locations to the centre of Norwich again a few years ago, literally the COVID year. And you were one of the sponsors that first year. Oh, yeah. There was three Norfolk merchants and your name on the wall. Yeah. And uh, the much envy about those because it was a really successful dinner. And people say, well, how, what do you have to do to get your name up on the wall? You have to be special. That's mm-hmm. what you have Bruce to be. Beer. Absolutely. Do, there's one or two people becoming special this year yeah. who've actually asked if they can join in with that advertising. So yeah. we're, we've got some more names going up for the old dinner which uh, is going to be a sellout we think that's excellent andrew in august we did take part in the norwich pub month Mm -hmm. so we did have our beers in several pubs in norwich and you will see our beers in norwich from time to time so how how has the trade picked up since now we will you know people back in the pubs drinking again but they're not they're not um and a lot of pubs i mean there's pubs are closing so fast i must admit it's been up my daughter is works in a local pub you know as a waitress and all of a sudden this last two three weeks it's really taken a dive now yeah and a lot of pubs aren't opening monday tuesdays mm. certainly not monday tuesday lunch times i think norfolk and norwich in particular is one of the bright spots to be honest i think that is still got quite a buoyant pub certainly through suffolk it's generally speaking relatively quiet in mm. the pubs and because we produce a craft ale which only keeps for th- about three days once the casks have been opened mm. we have to be very careful where we sell that beer where that beer is sold yeah because if it goes somewhere that doesn't understand the beer, then there's a danger it can damage our brand. Yeah, because, because people, people try it. the beer. Oh, that's that's not nice or whatever. Mm. Uh, because it hasn't been kept properly, so we have to be very careful what we do. But our internet sales are, are, are extremely strong, and the other elements we do are special beers for companies who want to either uh, do a, a run for their staff. We're doing some for some people for Christmas this year, for yeah, no, we, we, I can remember, I mean, this goes back to the Centre of Excellence. I remember mm-hmm. in the first few Elsham shows, we had we asked you to do some microbrewing of, of several bottles, and we had we put our own labels on, which were, you know, uh, I think that my favourite one was Doing Grain, probably the best grain merchant in the world. That was a bit of a nick off someone else I appreciate. but And that was really good, be a nice ruby ale. So the, the dynamic of that, is, that's a good one, because... Because for weddings or for a very special occasion, it is it is incredibly special, isn't it? Yeah, and I mean, uh, people have had them for weddings. I've always found it was 
it, it was very popular and people would, yes, they would drink the beer, but an awful lot of them, because it was almost seen as a wedding favour rather mm. than a drink, they would take the bottle home. Mm. And from a brewery point of view, you get two hits then. People have yeah. seen it then and then they've got it at home. Yeah, let's have another uh, one of those. Let's, for let's order some more. But I, I love the idea of companies doing it. And, and because we're, we're flexible, we can do relatively small runs, say 200 bottles. Mm. And most brewers can't do that. With a special label, we're just doing it at the one at the moment for a recycling company in Suffolk. Mm -hmm. But the thinking behind that actually goes back to the 1980s. The grain trade used to have lots of beers coming out which had a variety of them. Yeah, I remember that. So you had a Natasha beer, you had an Arena beer. Carew. Which one, sorry? Carew. I remember a Carew beer. I don't remember that one I do, I remember it. And I've got quite a collection (laughs) of these. But anyway, there was quite a nice collection, and, and including some wheats as well. I think I've got an Apollo wheat Maybe. beer somewhere as well. And it was the thinking behind because they were very popular at the time with the grain trade. We, we've just tried to take that in. Yeah, grain trade. The they're public. all slim, fit young men who have gin and tonics now, I think, mm. something along with them. You know, you've gone through from being a farmer for Munson's, you know, from planting the stuff and it blowing off the cliff, right the way through the process, right the way through selling it abroad all over the world. And then you've gone the final step and actually become a brewer i mean and actually selling beer you've done the whole thing haven't you you've got you've got the entire badge it's it's not just uh, selling it i also will sometimes be the one who's delivering yeah. it as well delivering um, it which uh, i think uh, my son john who's the brewer he is the brewer yeah he's got the beard I have to have a beer jam. Yeah. Very much the all of that side of the business is down to John and his amazing ability at producing good recipes and good beers. But we both quite like doing deliveries. But he's got the van, you see, so he tends to do all the deliveries <laughs> with the van. So what would you, you know, if you were to suddenly reappear 18 years old, what would you say to your younger self coming into the industry? Would you, well, first question is, would you do it all again? No. What would you do? <laughs> that was a surprise for you. Because when I, when I first started, when I came out of university, I wanted to work as an entomologist, as, mm. as a biologist, if you like. So it was only the lovely Mrs. Thatcher that really caused me to have a, a change of heart. Once I'd got into the grain trade, of course, I was really lucky because it was that transition between the old and the modern, which lasted probably from 1980 to probably 1990. Mm. So I learned all about... I used to go on, you know, to begin with every Tuesday, Leeds Corn Exchange. Yeah, yeah, no. You've got some barley cutters there, Andrew, in front of you. I was using those all of the time. I've got Mm. my own pair of barley cutters. Actually, they're at the brewery. My own set, I should say. And everything was bought on sample in the hand. Mm-hmm. So there were no paper contracts as such. Everything was bought in the hand. So there was skills learned in terms of identifying, saying what the barley variety was. Was it clear of all the rubbish that could be in it? But also you had the opportunity to negotiate face to face there and then. And that was just... Ah, <clears throat> oh, fun. I, when I first started going to Leeds... If you're good at it, it's fun. When I first started going to Leeds, I, was, I didn't sleep the night before. No. I was so nervous about mm. it. But after a while, it became absolutely addictive. And that's like a drug, isn't it? Like yeah. It, yeah, and being on corn exchanges, that was my absolute favourite part yeah. of, of doing anything I've ever done at all. Me too. Trading on corn exchanges was just brilliant. Yeah. But it doesn't exist anymore. No, really sad, isn't and it? I have to say, if I came back in and doing contracts and telephone or internet trading, no. That wouldn't interest me one little bit. Yeah, but someone's got to do it. 
Mm. And could you differentiate and, you know, you say you're lucky. You know, anyone who comes into a job, they don't really know. that You don't set out to be, I'm going to be the CEO of a maltings company, do you? It's, that's not what didn't. you do. You do a job, it evolved. You think, I could do that better than he's. Why am I doing that? Why can't I do it? And you end up in a situation where there's a natural progression, you called it. Now, not everybody has that natural mm. progression. But there's always a part of you that kind of just has to see the next thing through. But yeah. isn't that how life works? Yes. That's it, isn't it? Yeah. You know, so wherever you started, right, Margaret Thatcher might have been to blame for everything, but being CEO of a major maltings company probably paid more money than being an entomologist did. Oh, absolutely. You probably would have got a bit more fishing in. Uh, maybe not, actually. Yeah, in later yeah. times. Well, yeah. Do you do the fishing now? Does it happen? Now, not very much, a little bit. See, I maintain retirement means you become everybody else's dog's body and you get less time for yourself, and they all know when you aren't actually Well, working. I mean, I don't work full-time at the brewery. <clears throat> I do visit the brewery and be involved with the brewery regularly. You're a non-exec I'm... director of a very, very important company. Absolutely, a wonderful company. Remind me what it was called again? Doing Grain. <laughs> ah, that's the one. And I chair a multi-academy trust. I'm involved with the Food Museum and the Sustainability Institute at the University of Suffolk. So I am still doing quite a few other things as well plus grandchildren and a little bit of fishing and I've managed to probably through the Covid period really get quite hooked on gardening as well so I have an allotment. Six months of fishing a year when does that happen? It Um. doesn't happen Andrew (laughs) and I think if it did I would I would get bored with it. Do you think so? As we end this interview, it's been a lovely journey through the dynamic of the young you, you know, right now, I wouldn't do that again. But put in the position age 18 or 20 or whatever age, and you haven't quite got the entomologist job, you know, you're doing something. How could you change? How could you, in the modern world, find a job that suited and made you happy? That's a dilemma that all these young people, what can you say to that young person? Oh, that's a slightly different question, because initially I wanted to go into fish farming. That mm-hmm. was my original choice, and I went all over the country interviewing for fish farming, but never got a job. But Muntons did give me the chance to open up a fish farm as well. So I ended up doing some fish farming at Bridlington. Sometimes it's pure fluke, mm-hmm. and sometimes you just have to ride the wave. Yeah, but attitude to... Oh, positive. You've got to have a positive attitude through yeah. what you're doing. And if something really sticks in the throat, how do you overcome it? Do you confront or do you guide? I think a bit of both. And I'm not sure you can be specific on on that because it depends on the circumstances. Sometimes you definitely have to confront. Yeah. But quite often you've got to weave your way through. The final advice, when you're not CEO, I can give some advice here. I don't know if you agree with this, but I've worked with chairman of the cooperative here and, and various other bosses. If you have a brilliant idea, don't have the brilliant idea out loud. Have a conversation in the pub or a quiet moment and discuss something and wait for them to have the idea. And when they've had that idea, okay, that's a really good idea. I think that would work, you know. Yeah, funny enough, Andrew, <laughs> I often used to smile at the fact that people had these brilliant ideas. Yes. And I thought to myself, yeah, yeah, I mentioned that to you about three months ago. Yeah, but, yeah <laughs> but, young, youngsters nowadays, listen, listen to two old codgers. Yeah. But it was positive because then it was their idea and, of course gets going and get, and works and yeah you don't have to have instantaneous glory people do in the yeah. end remember who came up with the ideas that's with that happy thought alan i'm i'm so glad you come in to do this so th- thank you that's yeah, a pleasure thank you andrew cheers Thanks for listening. Make sure you subscribe to get new episodes as they are released and follow us on Twitter. We are at Dewing Grain. Call Dewing Grain on 01263 731 or email info at dewinggrain.co.uk. 
The Dewing Grain podcast is produced by East Coast Design Studio in Norwich.